Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the bullpen. In the bullpen today, we have David Grasso, host of Follow the Prophet with David Grasso. Good day, David, how are you? Hey, it's always great to be here in the bullpen with you, Doc. How's it going? It's going well, brother. Glad to have you back, man. We're gonna of chop course. it up about the labor market and um, black entrepreneurship or minority ownership. Uh, I don't wanna presume what you know or believe about those topics, so I will give you an opportunity to tell us your sentiment. Well, I think a big problem with small business across the board, especially for minority entrepreneurs, which as you know, minorities like Hispanics and African Americans are more likely to be entrepreneurs out of necessity or because it just comes naturally to us in our communities. We're regulated the same way the big guys are. And it's a big problem because you know if you try to regulate small businesses the same way you regulate big businesses, you put them at a strategic disadvantage. Additionally, the COVID shutdowns didn't make the situation any better. In fact, if you look at the statistics, a lot of black and brown owned businesses closed during the pandemic and the big guys market share just grew. So we're facing a crisis here, especially given that small business is the engine of job growth. So if you wanna talk about people who actually employ other people in their communities, you have to talk about black and brown entrepreneurs. You know, really interesting because it was actually under a Republican president where you had a lot of systemic failures as it relates to black and brown owned companies. And while we can talk about regulation, regulation really wasn't the catalyst for why businesses failed during COVID. It was because of the natural consumer customer flow, it was interrupted. But here's what regulation did hinder a lot of minority owned companies. 99% of the companies that qualified for the PPP loan and other opportunities through the massive stimulus were not black owned. And most, the vast majority could not even qualify because when the bill was written, it did not contain caveats for the reality of black and brown owned companies. So in a way, regulation definitely played a part in that, but they were able to overwrite regulation, which they did by the way. They literally put in the bill overrides to regulation for that larger companies took advantage of that smaller companies could not. So once again, and I'm not blaming all Republicans and I'm not blaming all Democrats. I'm saying both of them have failed to address the reality of small black owned, what we call micro enterprises and how they are kept out of major legislation like this. Would you agree? I think it's a bipartisan issue, definitely. And I think that a lot of our policies, while well intended, tend to breed bigger is better. We see in our economy, whatever sector we're talking about, they're dominated by just a few players. And they all have lobbyists in Washington, DC. I'm pretty sure a black owned business in your community doesn't have a lobbyist in Washington, DC. So the rules are being written by the victors and it only exacerbates existing gaps. And I think that's a bipartisan problem. And I think it's fair to blame both parties, including the party currently in power. Yeah, so let me bring some numbers and those that watch my show, they know these numbers like the back of their hand, but I'm always fascinated how we dismiss them so easily. Because you have left leaning policies, you got right leaning policies. Some policies, you really can't tell the difference between the two parties because <laughs> they're serving a major corporate interest, right? But let me give you some numbers just based on black families 
and their income, okay? Um, so under Democratic presidents and left-leaning policies, black families income grew on an average of almost $1,000 a year. Uh, but grew only $142 um, a year under Republicans. Uh, black unemployment fell by a rate of 7.9% um, across 26 years of Democratic presidents, but it actually went up 13.7, almost 14% under Republican presidencies. Across the years of Democratic leadership, black poverty declined by a net of 23.6%, but it actually grew three points when Republicans held the White House. Literally, black people get poorer. Black people make less money when a Republican and right leaning policies are implemented. The numbers are very similar, by the way, for Asians and Latinos in the same matrix. And during the previous administration, while there's a number that people like to use, it's called the U3 rating system to say more black people had technical employment. The truth is black people made less in household median income under the Trump administration than they did under the Obama administration. So these are all problematic numbers, right? Well, I think you, we all, one of the big mistakes we make, and let's just say in a, for a moment that these statistics are accurate. One of the mistakes we make these days, especially because of the way media works, is that we only attribute things to a federal policy. You're sitting in Atlanta, Georgia, which is home to one of the biggest stories that's not being told right now, which is black entrepreneurship is flourishing. And where are these people coming from? They're coming from places like where I'm sitting right now, Los Angeles, right? And they're migrating to places with less regulation, with lower housing prices, etc. And you can see people literally voting with their feet going to places that, well, Georgia's a blue state or a purple state, or perhaps a red state, depending on the day in which way the wind is blowing. But not everything is national policy. In fact, local and state policy, as we know, we're up. You know, we have a federal government, most rights are left up to the state. And states that are more pro-business like Georgia, Florida, and Texas are blossoming. And I believe minority communities are doing much better in those places than they are in places like California and New York. All right, well, let me tell you, brother, I appreciate your belief, but your belief is wrong. The city of Atlanta is the number one city for wealth disparity between the rich and the poor. We are a top 10 city in the city of Atlanta for homelessness as well. And we are listed as one of the most expensive cities to live in, in the United States of America. So when you say, "Oh, this is because of deregulation or pro-business attitude or them having some kind of um, matrix or a system that would attract small businesses. No, we're attracting big businesses. We're attracting major multi-billion dollar developers. We're attracting Microsoft, we're attracting Coca-Cola, Home Depot and others. While at the same time, artificially increasing mama them's property taxes, which leads to gentrification, displacement. That's what's happening in the city of Atlanta. So you are incorrect about your feeling, brother. I guess here in California, if you want to explore the, the counterfactual over here, is what I see is that every year there are less black people in California. Why is that? And a lot of it has to do with the left-leaning policies that we have here that are admittedly very well intended, right? Giving people health care, people giving giving people a living wage, helping out with housing. But here we're end game. This feels like late stage capitalism over here, right? Where, you know, there's homeless people marauding the streets. And while, you know, there, we have a lot of black leaders in California. It seems like the constituency is less and less black. If you look at Maxine Waters District, which is a hop, a skip, and a jump from where I'm sitting right now, every year it's less and less black. And a lot of African Americans are migrating to places like Arizona, Nevada, Texas, Georgia. 
And it's because housing is unaffordable here, life is unaffordable here. And it's pretty much impossible to start a business here. It's too competitive, it's too expensive, and it's too hard just to be an entrepreneur in a place like this. All right, so let me ask you this question because I think it's important to have a policy discussion as it relates to what governments can do. Now we know naturally that a government cannot and should not do it all. But we pay into a taxation system. And because sure. we pay taxes, that means that we should get something out of it. It is the transactional art of politics in America. But when you look pound for pound, brother, I mean just item for item. Mm-hmm. Black people paying into the taxation system, they get less. They get less under Republican leadership. Let me give you an example. You and I agree that job training programs or technical education works, right? You don't necessarily need to have a four year degree to make a great living in America, right? Of course. Okay. Yes. Well, tell me this if we can agree on that policy, and you're a conservative leaning guy, you agree on that policy. Why is it that Republicans tend to defund those training programs, those workforce and workforce development programs? And Democrats tend to increase the funding over those programs, 93%. Under Democrats, and then only 7% increases under Republicans. Why is it that we can come to the same conclusion about what's the catalyst for growth and jobs, and then have very adversarial methods for getting there? I think that's you're describing the reason why I'm a registered independent and not a registered <laughs> Republican is because things like job training, child care, etc., actually makes us more economically competitive. Mm-hmm. The cost of healthcare is actually an economic problem beyond a human problem as well. Of course, you know, all of these factors make us less competitive economically. And I guess that makes me a true free marketeer in which I don't really have a home right now because neither party is doing that well. You know, that that is interesting. So I'm a guy who believes that we must make our dollars make sense. Let me tell you what doesn't make sense to me. Have you ever heard somebody go before Congress and say, you know, it would be a great idea to go to war with Iran, but we just don't have it in the budget. Have you ever heard them (laughs) make that argument, right? You've never heard that argument, right? They they have never made an argument about we don't have enough money to kill people and blow things up. For some reason, We always have enough money to kill people and blow things up, it's called war. But then when it comes to domestic spending, domestic policies, we all of a sudden have to count pennies, we have to pinch pennies. We have to tell you we don't have enough money for Meals on Wheels or HBCUs. And I'm giving it to all administrations, Democrats and Republicans, but they don't debate about the cost of war. The only people that debate about the cost of war are progressives. Those are the only ones that hold both parties accountable to the price tag connected to it. Well, Doc, I think I've seen I, I've seen a shift in this. I think that okay. you know the the mess that we saw getting out of Afghanistan. I've seen people who are very establishment even saying like, mm, you know, maybe we should invest more at home. Maybe we should. But think it took about them twenty the damn years to get there, brother. Well, you know, as as your as your uh, mother probably never told you, better late than never, right? <laughs> I think there's a definitely a goalpost moving, and that's area, especially as it pertains to younger people. You know, yeah, yeah, I'm a conservative guy, but I don't think the war in Afghanistan really served any purpose beyond just a bunch of spending. Of course, it a lot of war spending does get reinvested in our own economy, which is something people tend to glaze over. But that doesn't mean it's the highest and best use of money. At heart, I'm a technocrat and I believe that we need to be the world leader. And if that means investing at home, then so be it. It can't all be military spending that isn't the highest and best use of all of our money always. Yeah, and listen, man, I'm with you on that. I, I 
think the whole concept of military spending is not even defense spending. They call it that. But the vast majority of that money goes to so many special interest groups that are involved in the war machine. That I'm really surprised more Republicans don't say this is fiscally irresponsible to continue to do this. But I think you all are getting there. I do think that there is a slight shift in how we do this. So let me bring this back to the forefront. Left-leaning policies, and I'm not just talking about economic policy. Sometimes we tend to make these debates and arguments about economic policy. It's also about non-economic policy that creates economic growth. For example, training. Training is not considered an economic policy. But you and I agree that when you have a more trained workforce, you have more people working, contributing back to the revenue I guess system. I guess where I peel off is, let me give you a very specific example, right? Yeah. So that we're not speaking in nebulous nature, right? The Dodd-Frank bill, right? Obviously, everybody knew after the financial crisis that these financial institutions needed some sort of regulation, right? So I, I met Congressman Frank, he's a very nice gentleman. And I think he met well, right? But the Dodd-Frank bill ended up shrinking the number of black owned banks down to about 2021, right? And as we all know, as you know well, Doc, we tend to loan to people who look like us, right? So here's how a well-intended policy completely backfired and really affects black and brown entrepreneurship. If you create a regulatory regime that is too hard to follow, you only have super banks. And super banks are a big problem for economic efficiency in so many ways. So that's specifically where I peel off. Investing in people, sure, Americans always deserve the right to economically empower themselves. And government is definitely part of that solution. Now, on the other hand, regulation, and I know there are millions of regulations out there. A lot of them very well intended, very well thought out by the best and the brightest, but they fail miserably and oftentimes do exactly the opposite of what they intended to do. Let me give you a policy that I think you can understand. Now, sometimes I will bring this up to somebody who leans to the right and they just completely brush it off. Under President Barack Obama, black men and women were starting to make close to what their white counterparts made at the same job with similar experience and education. All right, that's always been a problem. We have this disparity even when it comes to men and women working, right? We have sure. pay disparity in America. And employers take advantage of this pay disparity because of workplace or marketplace opportunities to do so. They're not held to a regulatory standard, or if there is a standard, it's just an infraction without enforcement. So they don't really do it in practice. So under President Obama, the number actually started to move in the right direction. Where when it started, you know, 68 cent on the dollar, it moved to 70 cent, 72 cent, 74 cent, 75 cent, moving in the right direction, right? Then Trump comes in. And the number, and this is based on your job labor statistics, the number started to move in the opposite direction again, literally backwards. You look at the analysis, there's a cause and effect relationship with all this stuff. The Department well, of Justice, let, let me make the case. Sure, of course. The Department of Justice, under the direction of Trump, um, sent a memo out and said that they would no longer aggressively um, target these particular companies who habitually violated uh, these protection policies. Well, what did that do? That meant that black folks and brown folks in the marketplace, especially with these major corporations, they started to make less on the dollar again. It's not an economic policy, but it's a policy that adversely affected those who were black, brown, and also women in the workplace. That's a Republican issue. 
That is a bona fide Republican issue. They say things like pay disparity is not a real thing, right? That's a problem, brother, because that's not helping us move forward. Well, I'm not going to sit here and say the pay disparity isn't a thing, and I'm there. But if I could channel, you know, my super Republican colleagues right now at this moment, <laughs> okay. they would tell you that you know, black and brown unemployment was at an all-time low. I think there's many problems with the unemployment statistic; it really doesn't capture a lot of things. But when we're trying to right historical wrongs, we have to find a way to empower people to to economically empower themselves, and I think. There's a line that's very hard, right, to find between enforcement, right, and making companies do the right thing. I think the goalpost has been moved on this as well, it's definitely since last summer, if you think about it. I was, I was interviewing a female entrepreneur, and one of the things that they created was if you see a panel with all men at a conference, they invite you to tag them. Right, and take pictures of the panel of all men. And I think that's the same case in a lot of corporate America. Corporate America is being shamed into pay equality, into racial equality, etc. So that has done, cultural changes have done a lot more than the government could ever do in my book. Well, I would like to debate you on that point. I don't have time, producers are giving me the wrap up <laughs> signal, but I do want to remind you. And every time this is said, I must, I must correct the record. When we talk about technical employment, because a lot of times the argument is, well, more black people were employed under Trump than in the history of modern history in America. No, no, not really. Here's why. Because the number that you're quoting, the administration used as well, is called a U3 rating system. And the U3 rating system said, if you had one hour of technical employment for that survey month, they counted you as employed. The real system is a U6 rating system that actually provides context to the data. It says, how much are they getting paid? Is it seasonal? Is it part time? Is it contractual? Was it a one day job? All right. And under the U6 rating system, black unemployment and underemployment was well over 20%. But they decided to use the U3 rating system in order to make their numbers look good. So you can't use that. And once again, the conclusion of the data is adversarial to the proclamation of the administration. Because the conclusion of the data showed that black family or black household median income actually decreased under the Trump administration and did not increase. And lastly, brother, you said earlier that you cannot attribute these economic policies just to the federal government or to a particular president. But you guys kind of like it both ways. You you say that in defense of bad numbers. <laughs> you guys, I've been grouped with the people. <laughs> you might as well have told me conservatives. You people, conservatives. Which no good sentence ever started with you people. Just conservatives. As a well, I did say you people. <laughs> but conservatives, those that lean to the right, especially on some of these policies, you all tend to want to take the credit or give credit to Donald Trump for numbers that you can spin as positives, but then numbers that are absolutely negative, you say, oh, well, there are other variables involved that cannot be attributed to the president. All administrations are a mixed bag. That's why I'm a registered independent. Okay. Uh, I definitely think the Trump administration has its problems, and we're watching the Biden administration have their own problems of their own. And in a lot of cases, the administration strongly resemble each other. And that might put me with a lot in common with the progressives, right? I often sit with people and progressives are the ones who I best connect with because they agree with me. A lot of the Biden playbook is coming straight out of the Trump playbook. And that's well, because yeah. being in power is, is hard. It's hard to move nah. institutions, they're slow. And 
I don't buy it. I don't buy that. It's not hard to do the right thing. Biden, let me be very clear. Biden is effing up, okay? I say that clearly. The economic policy, the lack of negotiation or fortitude to continue to push for a more progressive agenda, what he promised us to deliver, all of that. So no, I mean, the HBCU funding went from 45 billion to 1.42 billion. It's insane, brother. It doesn't make sense that we are literally voting in policy over personality, cause you know the personality of Joe Biden is what it is, right? We voted in policy. We said we wanted a policy agenda that has not been delivered to those who supported him, at least not yet. Okay, and I will I have guess, to hold I him guess, accountable. I guess we could have been a lot more conservative in the Trump era, and now we're living on the other side of that. Is somehow the American system always tends to moderation somehow always wins and. You're absolutely correct. People voted for Joe Biden because they wanted these policies, but somehow with the checks and balances, we always end up somewhere in the middle, and not everyone yeah, happy. About damn it. that game! I'm I'm so sick and tired of this middle game politics. We'll talk about that at another point. I, I think it's time that we actually do um, subscribe to a more progressive agenda in the United States of America. We've had the far right agenda, we've had the corporate democratic agenda. It's time that we actually have a progressive agenda in America because the progressive policies that many of us have come to love were put in place by those who were left of the Democrats of that era. And now we cannot live without them. All right, I appreciate you brother, thank you for being on the show. Always great to be here, thanks Doc.